Tibetan being the language that most of the things are translated into nowadays, like uh, it seems like Tibet. I'm, I'm mis I'm misrelaying what I read. It's uh, something about the, the language of Tibet has did it get passed down to Tibet and like that's where it's locked in their language or so. Mm, my understanding of the history was is that the 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 Buddha um, used Pali language, and then it spread to uh, China and Korea and. Um, Taiwan, and then it was translated into those languages, and then it went to Tibet, and uh, and things were translated into Tibetan language. But the but also the the way that the 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 practices shifted when they moved to the different cultures, and so in 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 Korea and in China and Taiwan, <coughs> it became Mahayana Buddhism. And in Tibet, it became Tibetan Buddhism, and they were. Um, it's a mixture of indigenous uh, practices that were there before the Buddha's teachings came, and the Dhamma. And that's my perspective. If you ask a Tibetan person, they'll have a different perspective about what happened. Mm -hmm. But the Tibetan tradition is actually the youngest of the three. The Theravadan is the oldest, the Mahayana is next, and the, and the Tibetan is the, is the youngest of all of the three traditions. But it's also, it's very complex and very sophisticated, and they've got some really well thought through and tremendously, tre tremendously powerful and skillful means of how they uh, understand the nature of the mind and uh, ways of working with it. Learned those languages? Any of the Eastern ones? No, I'm not. I haven't learned all those languages. I've most of my study and practice has been in English. Though the chanting, as you can see in this book, is also in Pali language. So I've learned bits and pieces from chanting, but I've never studied it. And the people who have studied it, you know, I know one person who said that it made all the difference because when he could actually read the instructions in the language that they were given, the subtlety and the nuances made so much. It was like the difference between having something be in color and having something be in black and white, that it made a big difference for him. Um, for myself, I don't see I'm going to be able to learn Pali, so I'm going to have to be content with you know, having access to what I do. A friend who's Spanish says, Spanish love songs just cannot be translated to English. You know, it just can't, you know, so. But this is a lot, you know, there's a lot in here, and so if you've got questions or there's things that come up about, uh, yes. I have a question. In, in meditation, you know, I want to be with whatever arises. I yes. want to be with the feelings. Yes. But I have, in trying to be with it, I, I tend to identify with it. <laughs> and and sometimes I'm not very good at observing. I think sometimes I, well, I know I identify and actually maybe make it worse. Yes. So it is absolutely the case that because meditation increases the power of concentration, that when we use the power of concentration to identify, then it can make it worse. And there's a whole thing that can happen with that. So we need to have a certain amount of equanimity. 
before we bring our focus to what it is that we're observing. And when there isn't enough equanimity and we're bringing um, um, concentration without equanimity, then it can increase um, attachment and aversion rather than diminish it. So usually we figure these things out, you know, in hindsight. And we begin to get a way of registering what are the, like, the somatic senses of how much equanimity we need to have in order to be able to handle certain kinds of things. Certain things are very evocative and require more balance to be able to be present with them in a way that is skillful. Also, when we're dealing with something that's really challenging, we can look to see if there are particular ways of being with it that help bring more balance and equanimity with it. I'm not sure what you mean about equanimity in regards to the sensations arising. So when we're identifying, then we're not equanimous. When we're identifying, we are uh, attaching to what it is that we're feeling. When we're feeling something and observing it... You're adding something onto it. <laughs> yes. Okay. okay, when you're observing it, but you're not adding something onto it, and you're not identifying with it, there's a lot of equanimity in that. Okay? When there's equanimity, you can handle things that are actually quite difficult. When there isn't equanimity, small things can be really um, uh, triggering or send you off balance. Okay? And, you know, we know that, you know, you, you, like if you haven't slept and you get up in the morning and somebody says something that's just slightly, um, slightly irritating, it can land like a ton of bricks. But if you're feeling well-resourced and centered and uh, comfortable in yourself, you know, somebody can scream at you and y you feel it, but it doesn't send you flying, you know. So our capacity changes, and our ability to deal with what is arising changes. So to develop equanimity is to understand the, the difference between observing something and experiencing a story in relationship to me with it. And that's like developing certain muscles. You need to understand how those muscles work and what they feel like to know the difference between observation and making a story about something. And it takes practice. So, I don't know if you know, I think I put on the website about the uh, June 8th, I'm doing a day-long retreat in Denver on craving and the end of craving. But if you're free and you're wanting to go, it's a really good opportunity to have instruction and time for practice and in a chunk where you can begin to see how these things come together. Because in, a, in an evening time, it's more difficult to get a feeling for how all of these muscles work. Now, in July, when I'm back here for three months, I'm going to start with instructions, meditation instructions. So instead of having the meditation be silent, it's going to be guided. And I'm going to start with basic stuff and work up gradually 
to bring more tools so that people have a clear sense of what meditation is and how to use it in a way that's skillful. And when I start that, it's going to be really helpful for people to come to consecutive meditation classes because it's going to be progressive. I'm not going to start all over again at each time. And so for about six to eight weeks, there's going to be a progression of in meditation instructions to work with how do we actually develop these muscles in our mind so that we can focus and understand and what are the other things that support doing that. Because right now it happens on accident. So you know, most of the time if you're playing a sport or if you're, you know, if you're painting or something, like, otherwise, I don't know how to let go. Like, you know, there's just, you say practice, but I don't have not one clue how to practice that. I, uh, I go outside to feed the deer, and you can immediately sense if you want something from them, they're going to run from you. The second I start breathing, I don't care, they're coming right up to me, and they'll, they'll eat out of my hand. But I still, by concentrating on my own breath, I'm still holding on to that attachment of concentrating on my own breath. So I don't know how to let go. Like, So yeah, I can't wait for your teachings. Yeah, so we'll start and then see how it goes, and then after a while I'll put it back into your hands as to what direction we go, because at a certain point we can branch into many different directions and pick up different themes and work with it. But you see, one of the things that I love about the chanting, you know, like the Mangala Sutta, is, is that it, it has the whole path right there. You know, it's just, it's just, it's all there in terms of how do you live a life in a way that's skillful. Mm. So, what would the teachings be on, you know, when when you're trying to live compassionately and generously, but especially in our society now, without getting taken advantage of, how? How do you find the balance there? Or does it just naturally take care of itself if, if the proper intention is behind it? The teachings on generosity <clears throat> is, is that it is a, a composite of the intention of giving, what you are giving, and who you are giving it to. That is really the fruition of cultivating generosity. And so it was for that reason that um, the Buddha said that giving gifts to the Sangha is very meritorious. Because when you're giving gifts to a community of people who are committed to living with impeccable integrity, restraint, and using their life for realizing the Dhamma, then the, the rubric ends up having the greatest positive potential. Okay, When we're giving to other people or circumstances or situations who are not in a, a training like that, then it, it, it can very much be the case that people turn around and want more or want whatever. And so it doesn't diminish the intention okay, of what you've given. It doesn't diminish the gift of what you've given. But their intention shifts the kind of equation about what 
is involved in terms of the overall impact of how it is affecting you. So it kind of goes back to not hanging out with idiots. Right. <laughs> <laughs> also not being affected if the idiot affects you or like tries to affect you, right? Like, like Move on and don't right. give to the idiot again? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> it's as if, I don't Well, know. I think whenever you're giving, no matter who you're giving to, so even if you're giving to somebody who is immoral or unworthy, there is uh, blessings that come from doing that. You know, sharing anything is uh, a blessing. In our world, and I think it's going to get increasingly so um, fairly quickly, is, is that, you know, we're going to be dealing with a lot of people who are in desperate situations, who don't have enough. And people whose um, minds are not holding together. So you've got desperate people whose minds are not holding together. It's, it's quite um, activating, you know. So in your own heart, you need to feel, you know, what is actually wholesome for you. Now, there's different ways of giving. You can give money, you can give food, you can give time, you can give kindness, okay? They're all gifts. And there isn't one of those that's better than the others of those, okay? And so in some situations it might be that it's simpler to give kindness rather than to give money, okay? It's less complicated. I don't know. But what is important is to for you to inquire what is your intention? Why are you giving this? What are your what are your you know, what are you hoping to have happen from this? And as much as possible to be clear and then to let go of outcome. Yeah. That is a, a so to be clear about your intention, to give and to give as fully and as completely as you can, to give at the right time in a suitable circumstance, to give something that's appropriate, and then to let go. And by doing that, then it, the greatest blessing comes with giving. Now, in India, if you went with, um, you went to a bank and you got a thousand rupees, which is what, ten dollars? And you decided you were going to give a rupee to every person who was on the street begging. You know, within five seconds you would be swarmed, you know, and it's, it's, it's actually completely overwhelming um, to have that intensity of people desperate coming, um, asking for something. So in all of these situations, we need to pick our, um, you know, what feels comfortable, what we want to do, what we're, what our, what we're, what our levels at, what what our means are, you know, so that we're not putting ourselves in, in in a riskful situation. Now I have heard people doing things like they go to the bank and they get two dollar bills, and so when they see somebody uh, on the street, they hand them a two dollar bill or. When they go through a toll gate, they pay for the person behind them, you know, so that they just, they, they make it a habit to do kind things as a way of practicing generosity. Or there are, I don't know if there are any in this city, 
But I know that there are like coffee shops or restaurants where you can buy a meal and you pay there's a word for it like unregistered I there's I want a coffee for me and a coffee for the un, unregistered it's not unregistered but there's something I want to pay for two coffees one for me and one unregistered so the coffee for me I drink and the unregistered one is somebody who wants a coffee who doesn't have money for a coffee can come in and get the coffee so there's a way there are restaurants who do that, you know. I think seats. Yeah, the community, the community um, cafe, cafe mm-hmm. downtown. I think they have something like that. Yeah. I haven't been there yet. You can. But I know mm-hmm. that you can. Uh, you don't have to pay for food. You can volunteer to work mm-hmm. for an hour mm-hmm. and you can get a meal, which is fantastic. I'm so That's excited cool. in that open. I haven't been in there yet either, but it's I've heard all sorts of good things. No, I've, I've been there. The food's good, but you do you have an option of working or contributing or. And I, I, and I would imagine they would let you pay for somebody else if you... Oh, sure. Here. Mm-hmm. And also the coffee shop up in Manitou Springs. This is a pay-what-you-want place. Oh, I haven't oh, been there either. Which one was that? Um, you know where the arcade is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you're standing at the fountain <coughs> that's oh, yeah. on the street looking at the arcade, it's right past where Adams used to be. Okay. It's on the left. So there's one little coffee shop that's right there, and that's a... Oh, is the no, it's not Mate. The Mate's on the street. This is okay. this is in the aisle near the arcade yeah, between the two streets, Canyon and Manitou yeah. Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's if you're facing, if your back is towards Manitou Boulevard and you're facing towards the Cliff House, it's on your left hand side. Yeah. Okay. I've seen that. Yeah. No, yeah. I didn't know that. That's really cool. <laughs> Does that help? It does. It does. I just, you know, I, I feel like I, you know, I know in my own life, and then I watch, you know, I watch other people who, you know, you see this, people just kind of taking advantage of each other constantly, and and just, you know, you try to be loving or compassionate, and then you've got these people who just take, take, take. But I think that that really goes back to being wise about who you choose to give. Yes, and also, you know, it's not helpful for any person to allow somebody else to be abusive for you, okay? Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. that's not skillful. And so if somebody is um, um, not being boundaried, not being responsible, not being responsive, not, you know, that's not helpful to condone that kind of behavior. So it's, it's it, you know, compassion is not a marshmallow goo that you smear on top of life and everything's pink and sticky. It's a, a, a genuine relational thing that actually is interactive and responsive. And so it's, you know, it's very skillful to encourage a person uh, to be skillful. It's not, that's compassionate, you know. And so with different situations, it looks differently. Like, you know, in one situation, like where there's a family member who's got an addiction problem and not aware of it, sometimes a family can have an intervention where they say, we cannot support you doing this, and these are the consequences if you don't get treatment, you know. Boom, 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 boom. And it can look really harsh. But, you know, meanwhile, the person's destroying their life, they're destroying their brains, they're destroying their body, they're destroying their relationships, they're destroying everything. And so it's like, and they're not figuring it out, you know. 
So compassion mm-hmm. can be ferocious. It's not always sweet, mm-hmm. you know? And you can really pull people up strong and say, this is totally not acceptable. And it doesn't have to be from anger. It can be from compassion. And, and generosity, because you actually have the person's best interest at heart. You know? You're not trying to punish. You're trying to actually instruct or help or encourage. I got a problem with like tough love, with like telling it too much like it is, and I'm dialing it back now. Like I'll just totally, ridiculously tell a friend, you know, fucking off or something. I don't know. But so that compassion, that the gentleness, I, I need to learn more gentleness. So what's helpful in tough love is to understand where is it coming from, and is it coming from because you're fed up? Or is it coming from, you feel that that's the most effective strategy to help this person wake up? And so tough love would be, this is the most effective strategy to help this person wake up. And being pissed off or frustrating or fed up is not compassion. It's being pissed off and frustrated and fed up. It's my own. It's my own. You're right. It's exactly my own feeling about, come on, can you get it or something? So yeah, you're right. It's my own self. Right. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to see the difference, Mm -hmm. you know, of, okay... I've got some work here to do, this is my stuff, then helps you become clear about, all right, so what do I need to do to help me with my work right now? And sometimes, you know, sometimes you need to wait before you can say something to somebody in a way that you have confidence it's going to be useful, you know, until some conditions come together. Yeah, it's called like zipping up. Yeah. <laughs> zipping up. <laughs> but how do, how do you zip it up when it boils out? <laughs> Spews out. Well, in that situation, sometimes you need to take a time out, you know, and just take yourself out of the situation and go throw rocks or swear or curse or kick trash cans or, you know, something because you don't have the container to hold it in that context. You know, my training is is that it's not helpful to speak out of anger. Um, sometimes you can use anger and, and synthesize the passion out of it in order to get to the place of looking at what are the needs that are not being met here. And it can be very um, um, powerful. But that takes a lot of skill and a really a tremendous amount of discernment to know what the motivations are that are, you are coming from. Because generally when we speak with anger, it has quite a lot of residue in terms of damaging trust and confidence and hurting oneself as well as the other person. And totally, yeah, yeah. It gets muddy, doesn't it's it? It's really a mess and then it takes a lot of shit shoveling to get it yeah. clear. You know, and sometimes it doesn't clear, you know. Like when you really blow up, like you completely lose a gasket, it can be a little bit like, you know, the Mount St. Helens blowing a top. It, it, you know, the, the blast zone was 15 miles where the things were destroyed. And it took decades for some of those plants to come back. And some of them, you know, it's still on very small, like lichens and small things when when there's such a huge, powerful, destructive force, 
it can really, um, it can take a long time for there to be healing. And with some things, it just never heals. Like there can be relationships that are just permanently damaged. They never recover. So. Hmm. Some relationships can be um, really toxic and hurtful, or, or people, because of, of their own, well, not, I was going to say their own trip, but maybe that's not necessarily true. Some people just don't wish you well. And um, it could be something that's not personal, or maybe it is personal. Um, it's really hard not to, to be, at the very least, avoidant of that <laughs> and want to stay away from it. Is there a, a correct instruction? Well, again, it depends on your own capacity and what you're dealing with. And so, you know, when certain things are abusive, it's really helpful to um, uh, know what your own capacity is. But one of the things that I, obviously there are graded trainings, and one of the things that I really loved in the Tibetan tradition is, is that they, they say, look at your enemy as your best teacher. Because, you know, the qualities of patience and the qualities of compassion, the qualities of of exchanging yourself for others. These are really, really important qualities and difficult to cultivate. And when you're in a situation where everyone's telling you that they love you and that you're wonderful and you're such a blessing and a gift to the mm -hmm. world, these are not easy uh, circumstances to cultivate patience and tolerance and compassion <laughs> with. Mm -hmm. But when somebody is nasty and rude and disrespectful, um, you're in a situation where those qualities are really what are needed to come to the fore. So when you look at that person like a teacher, okay, mm -hmm. and a teacher is somebody that you regard with respect, then it changes your relationship with them. Now, one of the, Carlos Castaneda, his books, they were so far out, I couldn't get my mind around them. You know, they were too the journeys and what was going on, it was hard for me to track, but there was a whole series of, he was speaking with Don Juan about um, a circumstance that he was in, which is that he was, he was employed and his boss was a tyrant and um, absolutely wanted him dead. I mean, not just mentally, but physically, he wanted to kill him. And, you know, Carlos was like, you know, desperate trying to figure out how to change the situation, get out of the situation, deal with the situation. He couldn't change the situation. Eventually he got out of the situation and he was like, oh, you know, that was so horrible. And he went to Don Juan and he was telling, you know, poor me, poor me, poor me. I was with this tyrant. He was such a tyrant. He was such an impossible, miserable, utterly, you know, inhumane tyrant. And Don Juan is going, really? 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 Tell me more. That's so wonderful. Tell me more. Tell me. Really, he wanted to kill you. That's fabulous. Seized right away. Because what he was cottoning on to is, is, is that, you know, as a human being, we are attached to our life. And, you know, our bodies, we're attached to our life, we're attached to how we feel. And normally we want to have people who like us, and we don't want to be around people who don't like us. So in this situation, it's the total reversal. You're around somebody who wants to kill you, okay? And so what Don Juan was teaching Carlos is, is that this is a place of, like there are 
few places where you can hold your power or, or know that you are a true warrior is to be in a circumstance with a tyrant who absolutely wants you dead and not lose any energy with it. Not lose any energy with it. Stay in that situation as a training ground to see that you not lose any energy with it. So, Carlos went back into the situation as a training opportunity. But because he went back in having kind of woken up to the positive potential of what the circumstances was, rather than, poor me, I'm such a terrible victim of this guy who's such a miserable monster, then he already had more power, okay? Because he chose it, and he understood the possibility of it. And he stayed in it until it resolved by itself rather than him manipulating the circumstance to get out of it. Okay. But what about loving kindness and compassion for ourselves? That is to understand our own capacity. You know, and so if we're not if we're not at that level, you know, and what's happening is is that we're curling up into a you know, a trauma vortex, then we're out of our depth. We need to be in a situation where we've got more ground. So we work with where we're at you know, so if you're a swimmer and you can handle three feet, then maybe you push the edge and you go to three feet and six inches. You don't go into 20 feet depth. Okay? Can you set boundaries and be a was it bodhisattva warrior at the same time? I think so. Because a bodhisattva warrior, you set boundaries knowing what your own capacity is. And knowing what your intention is, and being a bodhisattva warrior is is to try and generate as much positive potential as you can, to work with things that are challenging, and to not put people out of your heart. So even if somebody really has only malevolent intentions for you, it's important to not to put them out of your heart. Yeah, you might not want to have anything to do with them. You might not want to have them over for dinner. You might not want to. Um, speak with them. You might not want to associate with them, but don't put them out of your heart. Then are the boundaries we're setting, are they within us? More so than with other, than other people? It, it, it will depend entirely on the circumstance. You know? But you can push those boundaries in a way that feels growthful rather than um, uh, overwhelming. Like I was staying in a monastery. It was a t it was a city temple, and the property manager was a real nasty piece of work in a particular context. Mm -hmm. You know, he had an idea about how things were supposed to be, and and did everything he could to get it his way, including lie and cheat and steal and manipulate, okay? And I thought he was, until I saw that behavior, I had a friendly relationship with him. When I saw that behavior, I was really frightened of him because it was like, this guy is totally out of control. You know, anything, he'll try anything. He's got, there's no, there's no rules. It's like he doesn't care what he does as long as he gets what he wants, you know? And, and so I was, 
I was I noticed myself pulling back, I noticed myself contracting, I noticed myself walking further away from him, I noticed myself avoiding him, and then I thought, what's the problem? I don't need to worry about my own reaction. This guy is all over the map. He can be all over the map. I don't need to ask him to be different than that. I don't need for him to be relating to me differently in order for me to relax. Perfect. What's the problem? I'm okay. Chill out. Relax. I know I'm okay. He's all over the map. That's what happens. Relax. So you accept that he's going to lie, steal, cheat, and, and just simply be with that? So the, what happened for me when I had this conversation with myself was I stopped contracting in response to the fact that that was what he was possibly going to do. When I stopped contracting, then I was much more flexible and responsive about what I needed to do every time he would do something that was, you know, off the wall. So he wanted me to do something, which was not our agreement. And that's when he started lying and cheating and stealing and blaming and blackmailing. And so when I was contracted, I was reactive. When I wasn't contractive, I was responsive. You know, I was, I was de when I was contractive, I was defensive, I was aggressive, I was frightened, I was like, oh my God, this guy's totally out of control. When I wasn't contracted, it was like, that wasn't the agreement. End of story. <laughs> That's not what we agreed on. Don't need to say anything more. You know, I don't need to have a tantrum. I don't need to have a hissy fit. I don't need to scream. I don't need to do anything other than say, that's not what we agreed on. You know? And because I wasn't having a hissy fit, he stopped having a hissy fit. Because what can you say with that? Oh, that's so hard. <laughs> I've been dealing with this recently been noticing the difference between when I'm contracted and dealing with something and reactive and when I'm expansive and dealing with something. And that's exactly that. You're more mm -hmm. I'm more skillful when I'm expansive. It's really hard for me to get to that point. <laughs> well the way to get to that point is to start where you are. When you are contracted, just to notice that you're contracted. And to accept the fact that you're contracted and to uh, and to relax to breathe into the contracted and to get more space into the contracted and as you are present with being contracted it will shift now for me you know I run to the garden of the gods because I feel the rocks and my body relaxes and I drop into a space and into that space that I drop into there's no reaction. There's no reactivity. So even if, you know, ten minutes before there was a big huge something that was coming up, in that space it dissolves. So I have an access into something that can neutralize very powerful reactivity. And when I can experience that sense of, oh, this is not a problem, it gives me the capacity to respond rather than to react. When I usually go out hiking, it helps a lot. It gives me that space, and I'm yeah. like, oh, this is how I can respond. And right, I, I so part of the relaxed. compassion piece is to recognize that, you know, our capacity is changing depending on where we're at. Mm -hmm. So when you're in a contracted space, you're not going to be as responsive. Mm -hmm. 
and when you're in expansive space you're going to be a lot more responsive so it's not helpful to judge yourself if you're in a space that's not the space that you prefer to be in you just have to be with where you're at <laughs> that's, the <part. laughs> that's the part I struggle with to be with where you're at and then to bring skillful means in. So like if you need to talk to this person that you are being reactive towards, then make sure you go for a hike beforehand. Mm. To like so you you angle it in your advantage. You put yourself in the conditions that will support more ease and well being before you're having to deal with somebody who's going to be challenging. Or if something happens and you get really triggered, then head for the hills. <laughs> and then chill out and then see what's going on you know what happened but it's not helpful to judge yourself for where you're at what's helpful is to be responsive to where you're at so you need to also bring to yourself the same that you're hoping to bring to others how can you be with what is so that you get more peacefulness and balance and skillfulness with it thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.